We are in John chapter 2. Look at the chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, the first of his signs. The first of his signs. Last week, Christ was collecting his disciples one at a time. And the last one he spoke with was Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, once Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And that was a time that he was perhaps meditating, worshiping, praying to the Lord. And Nathaniel will say, you're the king of Israel. And he's just shocked. And uh, Jesus tells him, you're going to see greater things than these. Today, we're going to see one of those greater things. For the first of Jesus' signs, we'll talk a little bit more about the signs in just a little bit. But the first one here is a miracle. It's Jesus turning water into wine. Now, just to give you a little bit of the chronology, remember Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. We see uh, really his birth. His, um, you see him when he is uh, age 12 in Jerusalem. And then after that, it's almost like he's quiet throughout history. There's no indications, except for in some sort of crazy passages that are not biblical, that Jesus was doing these miracles. Actually, he would just look like like any other teenage boy, and then a man into his 20s, and now he's in his 30s, and now for the first time, he's going public with his ministry. It's going to rock the nation of Israel. Indeed, it's going to rock the world later. But what we're going to see here today is the first miracle that comes up is turning water into wine. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about wine today. I'm not an alcoholic. I think we're, I'm going to give you some warnings about wine as well and alcohol for that matter. But we also want to stay very scriptural with wine. Two things in particular. We'll talk about the third um, importance of wine when we take the Lord's Supper today. But the first two, what we'll see in Scripture is wine is associated with joy. There's several verses I can give you on that, but I don't want to dismay you if you're thinking, why so much? There's a lot in Scripture about this, but one in particular I'll point out, Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, part part of it. It says, the Lord causes the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate and wine to gladden the heart of man. Some of you may have grown up in a situation that you thought wine must be of the devil. It has to be. But the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all he, he created. Uh, and one of the purposes of wine is, is associated with joy. The second aspect is wine is associated with the messianic age. The Old Testament prophets would talk about the wine that would uh, one day be pouring and it would be a picture of the Messiah has come. We see this in Isaiah 25, verse 6, where the prophet says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So what Jesus is going to do today is he's going to take six water pots used for ceremonial washing, really the legalism of some of the Judaistic um, water washing, and he's going to turn that into wine. And the people are going to know something has happened. The messianic age is something has come upon us here. So once again, as a reminder, in John chapter 1, verse 17, John, by inspiration of the Spirit, says, the law was given through Moses, but what? 
Grace and truth are given through the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to make it very clear, the Old Testament law is not wrong. It was right. It was just inadequate. It didn't save anybody. All it did was point out your sin, that you needed a Savior. And that's when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. So this is the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This is now the third day. It seems the third day perhaps after Christ had met Nathanael, and there's a wedding in Cana. I've never been to Cana, but in all likelihood, it's a place called Kirbet Cana. It's an uninhabited ruin nine miles north of Nazareth. Remember, Jesus is from Nazareth. So what we're going to see here is a wedding taking place. Now, I find this helpful because uh, to study this because the weddings are, are so different in Israel than they are for us, especially some of you dads that have several daughters and you know who I'm thinking of. Man, you can't go back in the Old Testament, but maybe you wish you could have because folks had to pay for different things. I digress. First off, just to point out a few steps of arranged marriages of that time period. And I think what you're going to see is remnants, not remnants, but hints of your own salvation and what Jesus says about your own salvation in this. The first step, uh, just to take you back in this time machine, would be the contract signing. Parents, you got to pick your own child's future spouses. Kids, is that exciting? <laughs> That's the way it was. You'd pick them. And so many times your child would know growing up, that's the one I'm going to marry someday. That's the way it worked. There's the contracts. Uh, second was a period of betrothal. Now, betrothal is once you grew up, and it was a period of at least a year before the wedding. Listen to me. The betrothal period cannot translate in any way to our modern-day view of engagement. Betrothal is much more serious. Uh, you are legally pledged to marry that person. As a matter of fact, the only way to get out of betrothal is you had to get a divorce. And you go, I thought divorce was only for when people got married, married. No, no, no. For the Jews, it was betrothal time as well. Remember Matthew 1, when Jesus finds out that Mary is pregnant, what is he going to do? He's going to divorce her. And if you read the text, he's not married to her yet, but he is betrothed to her. And so Joseph, being a just man, had resolved to divorce her quietly because in his mind, she's committed sexual immorality. And so he's going to do it quietly out of mercy for Mary. But the Lord reveals that this child is not from sexual immorality, is from God. Uh, by the way, just more about that. Even if you had not officially married the person and that person died, you would be considered a widow or widower. Strange, very different. And so what happens during this one year time period before the wedding is the groom is going to prepare a place. Oh, that sounds familiar. That's right out of John 14. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you because this is what the groom does, the bridegroom does for his bride. He goes and prepares a place. On the third aspect of the arranged marriages would be the wedding day or the marriage. On the day of the wedding, the bridegroom brings the marriage party to the house of his bride. When? You do not know the day or the hour. You don't know. Brides, you better 
you know, wear that powder and paint, whatever that you want, but he's showing up and it might be in the middle of the day, it might be at midnight, it might be at the crack of dawn when the rooster crows. You do not know the day or the hour. <laughs> Strange, but that's the way it was. And so he would show up with a wedding party. So for one of the first things you would hear is the wedding party singing as they came to your door and you throw yourself together and this is the day of your wedding. It's the way it was. The wedding, and then at that point, the bridegroom um, would take you to live. Where? He would take you to his father's house where he has prepared for you a place right outside of his father's house or many times connected to his own father's house. This is just wonderful picturesque language of our own salvation. Jesus continues to call himself the bridegroom. We are the bride. Finally, you have the wedding feast. The wedding feast lasted a few days or even a week. For us, we would call that the wedding supper of the land, but for us, it really continues all throughout eternity. Continuing on, who is getting married in chapter two? We do not know, but we know the mother of Jesus was there, so that means there was some sort of familial connection. We see that Jesus is honoring Mary as his mom, and I'm going I'm to encourage you to think that because when you read this passage, you might go, doesn't look very honoring to me. No, he, he does honor his mother, but just to be clear, Jesus never venerates her. He, he, he never puts such honors on her that he doesn't give to others. It's just very clear in Scripture, although other denominations and churches have gone off the rails on this. Um, Mary is not the queen of heaven. She's not the mediatrix between God and man. She's not even a perpetual virgin. And some of you go, that's shocking. Well, you shouldn't be shocked by that. The Bible tells us in Mark 6.3 that she had at least seven kids. Mark 6.3, they talk about, is this not the carpenter, Jesus, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters, plural, with us? You see that Jesus had at least six brothers and sisters. So a godly woman she was, and blessed, yes. But Jesus is going to give her honor, but he's not going to go above that. And sadly, many times people do that. Don't go for where Jesus doesn't. So both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So there's at least six of them, Jesus uh, Andrew, Philip, Peter, Nathaniel, John. Uh, and I would note this, they're going to the wedding. Godliness is not being a recluse. Uh, for Jesus, there's no difference between the sacred and the secular, and neither should there be for us. Why would Jesus go to a wedding? Because he wanted to go to the wedding, because it would be fun. And not only that, we'll see that weddings are, are pictures of the gospel. Are there any other applications for us in this? I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, wise is that couple who invite Jesus to their wedding. I'll say it again. Wise is that couple who invite Jesus to their wedding. Whenever I officiate weddings, there are certain requirements that I have, or I'm not going to officiate. There, there needs to be biblical vows here. We're not changing up scripture to fit your marriage. But more importantly is I'm gonna be able to give the gospel. And if people say, well, I don't want you to give the gospel, it's out, I'm not interested. Why? Because a wedding is a picture of Christ, the bridegroom marrying the bride, his church. Even before the gospel even went out, 
It's very clear according to Genesis is God puts the man and woman together and the two become one flesh in the same way that Jesus Christ and his church become one flesh. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. So marriage, just a few other aspects about it worth mentioning. It's the first institution ordained by the Lord. The very first, even before the family. Uh, So we have here, the first institution ordained by the Lord is marriage. Christ's first miracle happens at a marriage. God ordained it. He ordained it as man and woman only. I can't believe I'm actually having to speak about this. But it's worth noting, it's just in our society, in our world, I could never go to a gay wedding. I could never go to a trans wedding for a few reasons. Number one, it's, it's the initiatory right into a sinful life. no. I can't go to a wedding and affirm that. I can't go to a wedding and encourage that. So number one, it's sinful. But number two, it's not even real. According to the Bible, when you, when you make the definition, which God does make the definition of a marriage, it's a man and woman. He doesn't apologize for that. And we can't take his word and twist it and go, here's now what it means. No. So it's not even real. And the third reason why is because I love that person too much to do that or those persons too much. So much so that I'm going to risk being rejected by them in order to follow the word of God. So, and when I say love them, I'm not just not talking before the quote unquote wedding, but you love them afterwards. Take opportunity to take them out to eat. Tell them how much you love them because this is what Christ does. He loves enemies of his own gospel and he took opportunity to share with them and love them. But he's not gonna engage in their sin. He's just not going to and neither should we. Some other aspects about marriage. It is God's gift. Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And some of you are thinking, well, marriage is a gift. What about the gift of singleness? Well, question, are you married? If the answer is no, you have the gift of singleness for now. Uh, Rebecca and I do not have the gift of singleness for now. One day we will. As a matter of fact, I look around and every single one of you will one day have the gift of singleness. Not only on earth, but in heaven. We're not married in heaven. We are married to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So whatever situation you find yourself in, Praise the Lord. You see this in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, I digress, but one other thing I'll say this. It's important to pray for your kids, a godly spouse. Of course you should. And yet at the same time, I would encourage you to encourage them that singleness is a good option. Paul does not apologize for his singleness. Uh, Philip's four daughters who are prophetesses in the book of Acts are not apologizing for their singleness. 1 Corinthians 7 actually tells us those who marry, Paul says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So um, just to kind of clear that up, because many times in evangelical circles, if you're not married, you need to get married. That's not what we see in Scripture. Marriage is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. And the Lord calls different people to different uh, places in life and different times. Verse three and four, we got a problem at this wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, woman? Or he said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we'll try to tackle all that here. When the wine ran out, some people have said, one of the commentators has said, the reason why the wine ran out is Jesus showed up with five extra guests. (laughs) That's a funny statement, but it's not accurate because the Bible says that he was invited and along with his others were invited. But what would be the result of running out of wine? You know, for some of us, you might go, what's the big deal? No, no. It's a huge deal for two reasons. Number one, the social disgrace that the newlyweds would carry around for life. Remember, wine is a sign of happiness. And you, basically, the wine ran out. What does that say about your coming marriage? Um, Our lives together. Especially for the bridegroom. The bridegroom, is his responsibility in particular was to bring the wine. And if he runs out, that's gonna be his wife and his first fight, and it's going to go on for years to come. So social disgrace. Number two, there's actually legal issues. You could be sued. You could be sued. There was a legal responsibility to provide wine for the wedding guests. Why? Because you're going to be going to eventually to his son's wedding, and you're going to expect to be taken care of then. But if you ran out, Katie bar the door. And so the mother said to Jesus, they have no wine. Some of you think, well, I know why she asked that. But really, there's, we're not certain. Here's a four, four options for you. Number one, she just wanted to report the situation to Jesus. Like she looks off and says, by the way, they just ran out of wine. Um, I don't think it's that, but certainly it could be just information's sake. Number two, she wanted Jesus to say something encouraging to this sad bridegroom and the guests. Maybe so. There's commentators that have mentioned that. Just, just talk to these people. It's gonna, be, it's gonna get bad here really quick. Number three, she wanted Jesus and his disciples to financially help out. Uh, remember the firstborn son you would lean heavily on, and Mary is doing that right now. She might have said, hey, can you and the boys pony up? I highly doubt it because Jesus is not known as rich. Mary wasn't known as rich. These other guys, they're just kind of following him. So I don't think that's it. I think it's the fourth reason. And this is what many have thought. I think she wanted a miracle. Mary knew the prophecies that his kingdom will have no end, that this is the line of David. This is the Messiah. She also knew his public ministry had just begun. So I think quite honestly, she does want a response here. And don't hold that against Mary here. You know, it's important to note as one of the commentators states, her desire for vindication. You're gonna see this especially in the book of John. Some, no, many, I think, consider Jesus to be illegitimate. You're gonna see that in some of these passages we'll study. And only she and Joseph and Jesus knew fully the truth. Then my pregnancy was miraculous. And people said, sure it was. But we know clearly in Scripture, Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Almighty will overshadow you and you will be with child. There was no immorality whatsoever, but God performed a miracle in Mary's womb. So I think that's what it is. We'll see in just a moment how she responds. But before I do, I should mention something a little bit more about wine because that's what the passage is primarily about. 
As I've told you, it is a symbol of joy. It is a dawning of the Messianic age. Um, And just to be clear, this wine is fermented grape juice at that particular time period. I know some people have tried to make the argument that wine at that time wasn't really wine. No, it really was wine. It's the Greek word oikos. It doesn't mean anything else. It means wine. But to be clear, the alcoholic content was less than today's wine and beer. Question, could you still get drunk with it? Yes, yes, you could. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, the Bible says, but be filled with the Spirit. I know some knuckleheads out there, it says, it says don't get drunk with wine, but it never says anything about beer. No, the Bible's making it clear to you, don't, don't get anything that affects your mental faculties that could make you make bad decisions, encourage you to make bad decisions. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The Bible's very clear about this, uh, the dangers of alcohol. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You want me to tell you the biggest problem with getting high, be it from liquid or some other drug? I think the Bible tells you, and perhaps you've never considered it before, It was new with me when somebody explained it to me years ago. When people fall into drunkenness or get high, what are they really doing? They're forgetting Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28, the creation mandate says in part, subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This, This language of subdue, have dominion, It's powerful language, having it over the fish, birds, every living thing that moves. Question, do plants move? Well, the question, do they grow? Then they move. What transpires when one imbibes in drunkenness? The plants now subdue you. The plants now have dominion over you instead of you subduing them and having dominion over them. You can imagine if a guy decided to raise a grizzly bear, he thought it was a great idea. Soon he let it out of his cage and as it grew older, and one day that man died. And you would go, well, that wasn't smart. He raised a grizzly bear and he let him out of his cage. Well, we would say it's sad, but fact is he should have subdued the bear. He should have never let him in his house, first off, but he should have dominion over it. This is what we do, folks. We're supposed to take care of the planet, but we're supposed to have dominion over it. This is what God calls us to. So when we engage in things that plants now have dominion over us, the creation is flipped on its head. And by the way, it's a worldwide problem. And it has been for thousands of years. Some of y'all grew up in abusive situations due to alcohol. And so it may even hurt you to say somehow that wine could be good. No, it's all bad. Just to be clear on this, it is a problem of alcohol, of, of, of the abuse of it, and it's hurt, our, it's hurt this country for generations. As a matter of fact, in the 1860s, Dr. Thomas Welch decided to help fix the problem. He invited, he rather invented Dr. Welch's um, unfermented wine, which when you think about that, if it's unfermented wine, it's actually not wine but he pasteurized grape juice so it wouldn't ferment. And so since that time in the 1860s, many churches have decided not to use wine, but to use Welch's grape juice. 
all right? I'm not making a ploy or one way or the other for, I'm just, my point is, is that's what he sought to do. But let me give you two options for biblical, uh, biblical options for alcohol use. Are you ready? Number one, uh, abstain. Don't touch the stuff. The Bible gives you plenty of warnings of the dangers of abuse. And number two is moderation. Moderation. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century theologian, says, happy is he who can use his Christian liberty without abusing it. And of course, if you are going to moderate your drinking, be mindful of the weaker brother, Romans 14, whose conscience is actually more strict than Scripture. So be mindful of that, especially those that have had troubles in the past with it. You just don't ever drink among them. That would be unwise. But either way, if you're an abstainer or a moderator, don't judge the other guy, according to Romans 14. The Bible says the Lord accepts them both, and he accepts both of those as options. Uh, Before you send an email or a call my way, study Romans 14. It's just true. But drunkenness is never an option for believers. And so Jesus looks at her and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Well, woman, some people have said, oh, you you should translate that as lady because woman sounds so like, ugh, uh, harsh. Well, I would tell you this. It actually was a normal way you could address women. Jesus calls out the Canaanite woman and he calls her woman. The Samaritan woman, Jesus says, woman. Mary Magdalene, woman. But then you go, yeah, but it's your own mom. I mean, I myself can't imagine looking at my mom and going, woman? Or, or even without the inflection saying, woman? It's just, why did he do that? Well, Jesus needs for Mary to see something. I'm not just your son. I'm your creator. I'm your savior. Our familial uh, way of doing things has changed. As a matter of fact, I will tell you this, in the scriptures, Jesus never calls Mary mother. Never. He never calls her Mary. In John 19, 26, he's on the cross and he looks down, she's right next to John and she says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. Now, just to be clear, did Jesus ever call Mary mother or did he go out of the womb saying, woman? He was made like us in every way, the Bible says. So that means that, of course, he would have utilized that language. But at a certain point in time, he doesn't call her that anymore. I would say, I think he's, he's clear. There's a separation between us, and rightly so. When he says, what does that have to do with me? In the Greek, it, tr- it translates like this. What to me and to you? What to me and to you? That's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. It's a Hebrew idiom. He's not being rude but he is being abrupt. Another commentator would quote it like this, why do you involve me? And the question is one of disengagement. It's disengagement because from here on out, Mary or woman, my job is to do my father's will, especially because he's now gone public with his ministry. So obeying his father is much more important than his mom. John 5, 19, Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Let me give you a couple of quotes that 
These men line it out better than I. D.A. Carson says it like this. She can no longer view Jesus as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. Uh, quick example, Mark 12, verse 46 through 50, Jesus' brothers and Mary show up and the house is packed and somebody gets word to Jesus saying, your, your mother and your brothers are waiting outside and what does Jesus do? He jumps up and runs out there. No, he says, behold, who are my mother and my brothers? For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And he stays put. Continue on with Carson. He says, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Bob Deffenbaugh, another fellow, says, as her sovereign God, Mary has no authority over him at all. This is what Jesus conveys with these words. It is almost as though Mary has said, Jesus, they are out of wine. We really need to do something. To which Jesus responds, ma'am, what do you mean we? And so Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, when you see Jesus use this language, it's always referring to his crucifixion, burial, and ascension. That's the hour the hour of our salvation was the hour of his death. So when, uh, basically it's when he could carry out his priestly sacrifice by taking away the sin of the world. Why does Jesus say this to Mary? Well, let me give you some options. There's some other options here and I'll try to tell you which I think are, are best. Number one, he might be saying it in a very positive way. My hour has not yet come for crucifixion. Okay, let's get this taken care of. Let's go ahead and get the wine going. So he's saying it very positively. I don't think so, but you could take it that way. Number two, he could, say, he could be saying this, his wine will flow in the full messianic age. Hosea 14, seven mentions this. And so he's saying this, I'm not raining upon the earth right now. Even though the messianic age door is now cracked open, I've got a death to go to. And then one day, the full messianic age will be in full bloom. Then the wine will flow, but it's not happening today. Could be. I kind of like three and four the best. Number three, his identity as the Messiah is not yet ready to be revealed. This miracle woman is not going to be public. It's gonna be private. And sure enough, it is. Or number four, Perhaps it's a combination of three and four. His slight refusal to act, but he will perform the miracle anyway. Does Jesus ever do that? Where he first says no, or he seems to ignore people like the Canaanite woman that's begging him to, to have mercy on her child. And so Jesus wasn't even paying attention. He was just walking. Now he was paying attention, um, but she comes up and finally begs to him. And he will say, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. And you know the rest of the story. She eventually says, well, even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. So Jesus is going to refuse to act, kind of a slight refusal, uh, seemingly turns Mary away. But then Mary has got an idea that Jesus is gonna do something, I think. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
By the way, if you're looking for a really fantastic verse for 2024, there's your verse. Do whatever he tells you. I think she thinks he's gonna do something. Maybe she saw a twinkle in his eye when he said it. Maybe she was like, I don't know. But if he says something, listen. So Genesis 41, 55, the Egyptians come to Pharaoh. The, this, the country, the whole world is, is starving. Joseph has now set aside years, seven years of good plenty. And Pharaoh says to the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Let me tell you what, can I just throw this one out to you? Ladies and gentlemen, if we would just follow Jesus, his commands, I'm not saying life would be easy, but the pain and heartache caused by our own sin would be so much lessened. So when a man or woman comes to me and they've fallen in love, but they've fallen in love with an unbeliever, I've found myself in this situation before uh, doing some counseling and I quickly realized that I'm dealing with uh, a mixed, possible mixed marriage, having nothing to do with race because that is never a mixed marriage in scripture. It's a believer and an unbeliever. What do you do? And you end up talking to the guy or the girl afterwards and they'll say, but I am in love with him. I am in love with her. I have to marry him. When you look to the person, you say, you need to do whatever he tells you. And what does the Bible say? Second Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does light have to do with darkness? How about this one? For some of you that have been married for a long time, I am so tired of this marriage. I hear this one a lot, but he's changed, but she's not the person I married. Oh no, they are, unless you believe in the invasion of the body snatchers, that's the same person. Yeah, but they've changed. Yeah, but I'm so unhappy. Let me tell you what, y'all, 1 Corinthians 7 says it three times, that each one should remain in the situation that God has called him. Maybe God wants the world to see by what a jerk this person you married and you're gonna stay in it because you love Jesus more than you love that person. And you're gonna draw people to the Savior by you suffering well for the cause of Christ. Now, I'm not saying, you know, un I'm not talking about biblical reasons for divorce. I'm just saying you're just weary of it all. Stay there. Do whatever he tells you. Verse six. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These big stone jars would be holding in all 120 to 180 gallons. In the first century, Jewish purification rituals were ridiculous, were full of legalism. The Old Testament law keeping that said you would need to wash your hands have gone to washing entire bodies, and it was a lot of legalism. We'll see this in Mark 7, if you'd like to check it out on your own. And so he says in verse 7 and 8, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to him. Why fill it up to the brim? Well, obviously, Jesus wants to give even more. Than, than perhaps that they were asking for, but also to reveal that no room for wine to somehow be added to kind of, you know, make this a non-miracle. No, no, this is miraculous. So he draws some out and he says, take it to the master of the feast. That was probably maybe the best man, one of the groomsmen perhaps. And so they took it to him. 
So just to be clear what's going on, Jesus is telling them to go and give ceremonial water (laughs) to the master of the feast. Here you go. The questions that we cross, that cross my mind would be, when did the water actually become wine? We don't know. Did it change color? Did he change it to red wine or, or was it white wine? Maybe it looked just like the water. Verse nine and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, once again, to be clear, is this real wine? Yes, this master of the feast did not all of a sudden mix up grape juice with wine. It was wine. Uh, And something about wine, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I do know it takes time to ferment. Just because you leave a little bit of grape juice in the fridge does not mean the next day you're drinking wine. It takes time to ferment. Hmm, are there any other episodes or scenarios in the history of the world where God may have made things have the appearance of age, like Adam and Eve? Some say the world is 4.5 billion years old. You can say it is. I disagree. But the point, the reason why I would disagree is can God make things with the presence of age? Of course he can, and he does, and he has. And then another question is this, is why would the Lord Jesus Christ create something that people could abuse? Why would he do that? Well, you don't really think this thing through, do you? The Lord also allowed the creation of pizza and chicken fried steak and Texas sheet cake, which are all good gifts that people abuse all the time. So when the people had drunk freely, or literally as it says in the Greek, when the people had, had become drunk, what this guy is saying, then he serves the poor wine. That makes good sense. People have drank the, the, the good stuff, just give them the trash. They don't know the difference. But you have kept the good wine until now. It seems like this may have even been a little bit of a rebuke, like why weren't we drinking this stuff earlier? Why? So it's interesting, the bridegroom gets credit for Jesus' creation. You can imagine what's going through this bridegroom's mind. I don't know where this stuff came from. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first sign. We'll see seven signs. In John chapter one, verse, uh, rather chapters one through 11, what are the reasons for the signs? It doesn't tell you till the end of John, and I've mentioned it before, but it's, a bear worth, uh, it's worth repeating. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. What are these signs about? To proving that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the God-man. Come to the world to save the world. Uh, One of the congregates in here, Jeff Westland, I appreciate him. He gave me an article this past week. It was from Dr. Cliff Lewis, uh, who did a science of Jesus' miracle in John 2. He did an article, and 
It's really interesting. I'm not a scientist, but think about this, folks. Turning water to wine from, from an, an Adam's perspective, if you will. Listen to this. Uh, at a molecular level, the water, basically hydrogen and oxygen, was changed into wine that contains sugars, yeast, and water, which also contain carbon and nitrogen along with oxygen and hydrogen. Thus, by changing water into wine, Jesus demonstrated his authority over even the atomic structure of atoms by commanding oxygen and hydrogen atoms to disassemble and reform into other atoms of different configurations. You know what that means? That means shame on us for ever questioning God's workings in our lives. He controls atoms. Does he not control our situations and working them for our good? John 1.3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made, even changing atomic structures. And through this, it says in verse 11 that he manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. So for the first time, we see just a little bit of his divinity that they had never seen before. And the disciples believed him. Now, I would say not for the first time, but more convincingly, they believed in him. In conclusion, a couple of points. Significance of wine. The man says to the bridegroom, you have kept the good wine until now. I believe we will actually say that same statement to the bridegroom in heaven. You have saved the best till now. You see, the world's banquet, y'all, is short-lived. The wage of sin is death, and it's coming. You hear it's, you hear it's, you hear it's the, the footprints. You hear, rather, the, the, the sounds of the feet rushing into hell. This is as good as it will ever get for you for eternity. But for believers, this is as bad as it will ever get as God's children, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation, the best wine is yet to be. In the scriptures, we see that wine is noted as a source of joy. It's noted as a sign of the messianic age. And the third thing is what we're gonna see today as we take the Lord's Supper. It's the chosen by the Lord is that which represents the blood he poured out on the cross for our salvation. Nancy Guthrie had some great things to say, not simply about the not about the wine so much, but about the significance of the bridegroom. This bridegroom in the story blew it completely. Lo and behold, the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ, shows up on the scene. He saves the day. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're married today and your spouse fails you, how many times? It's a constant reminder, really, that your true spouse the true bridegroom yet to come. He's already on the scene. He saves the day. He took your sin on the cross. He died for sins you haven't even thought about committing yet. Not only that, but he is the one that you are supposed to find your true fulfillment. So why are you still seeking it in a spouse or in hoping to get married one day? You already have your true fulfillment in the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So trust the one who never fails you.